Welcome back to the Big Amateurs Monologues. My name is Richard Ford and I'm your host. Just a real quick reminder that all of my podcast material can be found on my podcast website and that is bigamateurism.com and I occasionally post resources that are relevant to an episode that don't appear on the third-party directories and I'm going to do that with this episode as well. I'm going to put several links to uh, some of the things that I discuss. All right, today is October 20th. 2022. And this is really a quick hit kind of episode. I've got a few things I just wanted to talk about because they came up and then lay a little bit of foundation for discussion about the lay of the land in Congress. And most of the things I'm going to talk about today are relevant to the NCAA and Power Five's monomaniacal campaign in Congress to get three sweeping federal protections and immunities that would leave athletes with virtually no legal or regulatory pathway to assert their rights going forward. But the first thing I want to talk about is really a timing issue, and it relates to this Johnson suit that's pending in the Third Circuit Court of Appeals. And I have talked about that suit quite a bit. It is under the Fair Labor Standards Act, and a group of athletes have sued the NCAA and their member institutions, claiming that their services as athletes make them employees for the purposes of the FLA. I'm not going to go into the details of what that law says and, and how it may or may not apply to athletes. I'm just going to refer you back to the two episodes that I did. And on June 14th of 2022, in episode 122, titled Johnson versus NCAA and the Fair Labor Standards Act, the NCAA's fact-free fantasy world, I, I talk about some of the predicate issues and cases that led up to the, the Johnson case in the Third Circuit. And then June 21st, a week later, I put up episode 123, more on the Johnson lawsuit, the NCAA's bizarre interpretation of Austin. Those two episodes can give you a good overview of the uh, FLSA, how it fits into athletes' rights. And I also discuss the history of this Johnson litigation. There were a couple of prior cases in the same vein. And then some of the important case law that the parties are relying on. But the central question that's presented, actually the only question that has been presented to the Third Circuit is whether or not athletes can be employees for purposes of the FLSA. And the briefing is complete in that case. And now there will be an oral argument. And that's really kind of the, the breaking news, the little tidbit here. It appears that oral argument is scheduled for December 15th of twenty twenty. Two, so just in a couple of months. And then I think we're probably looking at a decision in May or June. I went back and looked at some statistics on how long it takes the various federal circuit courts from the time of oral argument to the time of a decision. And in civil cases, and this is a civil case, the Third Circuit usually issues an opinion around uh, five and a half months from oral argument. So that would take us into May or June. That could change. Who knows? But this is a really important case for a lot of different reasons, but it, it goes to the heart of the employee issue. And the NCAA and Power Five have drawn a line in the sand. That line has been in place since the 1950s when Walter Byers invented the term student athlete out of whole cloth to make it impossible for athletes to be deemed employees for purposes of workers' compensation liability. And now that there's some uh, 
discussion about athletes unionizing and engaging in collective bargaining, that no employee line is even more important to the NCAA and Power Five because a predicate to collective bargaining is that you are an employee. You have to establish employee status, and that's what that 2014 Northwestern case was all about. But the NCAA will defend that no employee hill, and they will die on it. This is the most important issue to them right now. And it ties directly into the NCAA Power Five's campaign in Congress, because all of the Republican-sponsored NCAA-friendly bills, the Rubio bill, the Walker bill, the NCAA bill that was proposed, the Moran bill, and on the House side, the Shabbat bill, all of those bills have an absolute prohibition on athletes being employees. And that issue has gotten virtually no discussion in the mainstream media. And it's one of the reasons that I really want to lay out the history of the NCAA's congressional campaign. But I think a lot of people just don't understand the consequence of what the Republicans and the NCAA and Power Five are asking for here. Because if the NCAA and Power Five were to get a bill like the Wicker Bill, which I'm going to talk a little bit more about here in a minute, that has this absolute prohibition on athletes being employees, this Johnson suit gets wiped off the books and it's gone. So this is important stuff here. So I have calendared December 15th. I'll pay close attention to the oral argument. I have not been able to determine who the uh, panelists are going to be in this Johnson case. These uh, federal circuit courts hear cases in panels of three judges, and that can be important and looking at their prior decisions. So I'm going to look at all of that stuff as the oral argument approaches, and then I'll do an episode on the backside of it to, to talk about what I heard and what I think it may mean in terms of a decision that's likely to come out in the spring. Uh, now I want to turn to a few things that are really on point with the NCAA's campaign in Congress. And I mentioned this first thing, the Roger Wicker bill. I mentioned it in the last episode, just in passing. But on September 14th, just a, a little over a month ago, Wicker reintroduced a piece of legislation that he first put on the table in December of 2020. And this was after the November 2020 elections, and we had the Georgia special elections coming up, and the Senate was hanging in the balance. And Wicker is a Republican from Mississippi, and he, before the 2020 elections, he was the chair of the Senate Commerce Committee when the Republicans controlled the Senate. And that is the most important committee in terms of any legislation that's likely to, to come out on uh, athletes' interests, however it's packaged. So that's a very powerful committee, and Wicker is a very powerful person in this whole discussion. And I would say he has been the most aggressive senator on behalf of NCAA and Power Five interests, and he's not going away. This is his thing, and, and he's been working it, really going back to the fall of 2019 and heading into that very first hearing in the Senate, ostensibly on name, image, and likeness on February 11th of 2020. That was conducted in a subcommittee of commerce that was chaired by Jerry Moran, a Republican from Kansas, who's also an important figure in this because he introduced a bill in February 2021. And both of the Moran and Wicker bills have the three death provisions. That's what I call them, that the death provisions that would basically end the athletes' rights movement. And they are first, the federal preemption of any state laws, name, image, and likeness, or otherwise, that interfere in any way with the NCAA's compensation limits or their eligibility rules. If the NCAA and Power Five get that preemption, then all of these state name, image, and likeness laws 
just disappear with the stroke of a pen. The second thing, and this is so, so important too, the NCAA and Power 5 want antitrust immunity from any federal or state lawsuits that challenge any NCAA compensation limit. This is the very same antitrust immunity that they tried to get from the United States Supreme Court in the Austin case. And they didn't shoot straight about their motivations there. But the reason they appealed that Austin case to the United States Supreme Court was to get a judicially created antitrust immunity that would place them literally above the free competition laws in the United States of America. They would just be operating uh, in space that very few market participants have ever been allowed to operate in. And, and it just reflects their arrogance that they're just so doggone special as the guardians of the sacred principle of amateurism that the laws simply don't apply to them. A unanimous Supreme Court said, no, the laws do apply to you. We're not giving you antitrust immunity. And you, uh, if you want that, you may have to go across the street to the Capitol building. And on this request for congressional antitrust immunity, it's really important to point out that when you look at these immunity provisions, they are retroactive. And the Wicker Bill has retroactive antitrust immunity on name, image, and likeness cases. And so that would reach back and capture this House case that's on the West Coast right now that is a name, image, and likeness case. That House case causes all kinds of problems for the NC. Because there is a damages component there. And the, the thrust of that lawsuit is that the NCAA's compensation limits on name, image, and likeness caused financial harm to athletes who are subject to that compensation limit. Of course, that was relaxed with this interim policy. But if you believe all the NCAA's propaganda about this wild west, out of control nil market, and these guys are making millions of dollars and it's disguised pay for plays, disguised recruiting inducements, all, all this stuff, you would have to believe that there will be evidence of that in this house suit. And actually some of those skies falling narratives hurt them in-house, because uh, to minimize damages, they would probably want to portray the nil market as very modest and that athletes aren't making that much and that this uh, nil market's really been overblown. You know, <laughs> But the NCAA is so good at taking positions in one forum and then doing the exact opposite in another. And I think they're doing that dance with this house litigation. But the reason that the damages component of that case is so important is that if there's a really big number there and there's a finding that there's an antitrust violation, that there are uh, substantial damages, that damage award gets tripled. There's a what's called a treble damage provision in the Clayton Act, the Antitrust Act. It's a companion to the Sherman Act. And that is a big, big problem for the NCAA because I think you could be looking at a number that is in the high hundreds of millions. I wouldn't rule out using the B word. The potential financial hit is substantial. So the NCAA and their minions in the Senate are looking at ways to try to wipe that case off the book. And they're doing it by saying that as to name, image, and likeness compensation limits, not only is there going to be immunity from free competition laws going forward, but we want to reach back, make it retroactive, and capture this house suit. That's a big ask. Actually, big doesn't capture it. It is a massive, unprecedented 
ask. The audacity of that ask simply hasn't been acknowledged for what it is, and that's due in large part because I just don't think that the media that's covering the regulation and business of college sports is really diving deep into to what's in these bills, or they're running interference for the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries. Could be either, could be both. And in my upcoming episodes of Lay of the Land in Congress, I'm going to go through all of these bills, and I'm going to do a side-by-side analysis of the uh, Wicker One, that bill that came came out in 2020 and then Wicker 2, the building just last month. And then the third thing that the Power Five and the NCAA want from Congress, and it's uh, included in this Wicker bill, is a declaration, an absolute declaration that college athletes cannot be employees of their universities. And as I discussed earlier, that's to avoid the collective bargaining scenario and any liability under workers' compensation law or any other laws that protect employees' interests. That's a massive, massive ask that has absolutely nothing to do with name, image, and likeness. And this Wicker Bill has that Orwellian title. And let me just pull this thing up here. Okay. The Collegiate Athlete Compensation Rights Act. (laughs) And it's built around providing name, image, and likeness benefits. But boy, we can't provide those benefits unless we get these protections and immunities that are going to preserve the integrity of college sports. And it's amazing to me that people like Wicker are making essentially the same arguments. Their, Their justification for congressional action is virtually identical to what it was in uh, 2019. And that is the boy, we need these protections and immunities as a precondition to the existence of a name, image, and likeness market. Because boy, if we don't have this, these protections, then uh, and the nil market comes into existence, it will result in the fatal collapse of college sports. Well, guess what? The NCAA didn't get what they wanted from Congress. And that all uh, kind of unraveled on them in June of 2021. And they waved the white flag on enforcing their compensation limits on name, image, and likeness through this interim policy that Mark Emmert just dumped on the institutions. And on July 1st of 2021, the state name, image, and likeness laws went into effect. And guess what? The earth didn't stop rotating on its axis. The birds didn't stop chirping. We didn't see any mushroom clouds in the sky. And the games went on. The games went on and the games continue to go on. I think we're having a pretty exciting fall football season and we have revenue streams that are increasing at a breathtaking pace for the Power Five conferences. So, you know, when Wicker is reintroducing this bill, he's really struggling to articulate a rational, intelligent basis for re-engagement with Congress to ask for these three extraordinary federal protections and immunities. But he's going full tilt. He's not giving given up. He is motivated. Roger Wicker is motivated. And I've said this before, and this kind of is an interesting discussion in the context of college sports and how important it is to to want to win. And so often in contests between two equally matched teams, the teams that have equal talent and skill, it's the team that wants it the most that wins the game. And in this game, and, and I think that uh, the politicians and the lawyers and lobbyists and spin doctors, they view this as a game. They get paid for playing this ridiculous, absurd 
power game inside the Beltway. And they want to win and they are motivated. And I'm not sure that the athletes' rights advocates, those in the Senate, and then those outside of the Senate, and of course the athletes, are they as motivated as Roger Wicker is? That's really the, the key question going forward in this congressional debate. Who wants it more? And based on what I've seen, I don't think there are many people out there who want to shut down the athletes' rights movement more than Roger Wicker or Nick Saban or Greg Sankey or pick your other Republican senator who's been carrying the water for the NCAA. This is a mission. They're on a mission. And Roger Wicker stands in stark contrast to Maria Cantwell on that point. You know, after the Republicans lost control of the Senate, Maria Cantwell, a Democrat from Washington, takes over the chairmanship of the Commerce Committee. Roger Wicker moves to the ranking member. And Cantwell, she's interested in it in large part because Wicker is in her ear 24-7 because he really wants to get a piece of legislation passed. She has kind of gone along with that. But I don't know how motivated she is on the athletes' rights issue. And when you look really at how she's handled those issues since she became the chairwoman in January of uh, 2021, she's been more interested in bipartisanship than really protecting the athletes' rights. And I'm not sure that she understands these issues in the way that Roger Wicker does. So, you know, that's an important component of all this. And of course, we'll see what happens with the midterms. So when this Wicker bill was re-released in September, just last month, there was some coverage and it actually it got a, a lot of coverage, probably more than it deserved because it really wasn't substantially different from his original bill. And nobody in the media is talking about these three death provisions that would end the athletes' rights movement and how important those are. Because if the these three provisions wind up going into effect, whether it's the Wicker bill, the Moran bill, what the NCAA had proposed, or or Rubio, or some combination of senators. Put those three crucial limitations in a bill, and, and that bill is passed. It doesn't matter what else is in the bill, because NCAA and Power Five can do whatever the hell they want to. And in that episode on Mark Emmert's interview with Christy Dosh back, I think it was early September, I think it was September 10th or 11th, and I did an episode on that. And uh, make and Del Harim, who was the former head of the Justice Department's antitrust division, who was in communication with Mark Emmert in January of uh, 2021 when the NCAA had promised voluntary rules changes on nil. And there was this discussion about whether there were antitrust concerns. Del Harim said that the NCAA's excuse that they didn't follow through on voluntary rulemaking because the Justice Department told them to stand down was simply false. That was a false statement and a false narrative. And he correctly pointed out that what the NCAA wanted was to wait and see what was going to happen in this Austin suit because they were asking for antitrust immunity in the Austin suit. And if they had gotten that, then they wouldn't have had to do anything on name, image, and likeness, or they couldn't have been held accountable for whatever they did on name, image, and likeness because they couldn't be sued under federal antitrust laws. And Del Harim just nailed it there. That's the attitude that the NCAA and Power Five have had all along since the very beginning of their campaign in Congress in 2019. And if they get preemption, antitrust immunity, and athletes can't be employees, it's over. It's simply over. And they cannot be held accountable. So uh, on this Wicker Bill, I want to talk about an article that came out in Sportico on October 3rd, just, what, two weeks ago, and an interview 
that Roger Wicker granted to uh, Sportico's legal analyst, Michael McCann, and I've mentioned him in prior episodes. Some stuff I think he's he's correct on, some stuff not so much. And this is in the not so much category. There's some breathtaking <laughs> misdirection here on, uh, on a number of levels. And I think I'm going to keep my powder dry on an analysis of this. I may uh, do that here uh, shortly for another purpose, perhaps in another forum. But I will say this, I think people reading that article and listening to that interview would very likely come away with the impression that Roger Wicker was reasonable in his legislative proposals and his attempts to try to regulate the name, image, and likeness market, and that he was uh, aligned with American values. You know, <laughs> McCann invoked uh, Wicker's military service, and then uh, Wicker invoked our founding fathers and the need for thoughtful, deliberate legislative decision-making, and it just really painted this picture of Roger Wicker Patriot, when in fact the limitations contained in that bill are decidedly un-American. They make a mockery of American freedoms and liberties, uh, particularly economic liberties. I, I just find that so ironic, coming from a Republican from Mississippi who built his political career on states' rights and free markets. He's just flushed that down the memory hole, and Roger Wicker hasn't gotten a difficult question on his monomaniacal campaign to uh, get a bill like his past. And this interview was no exception. This was a powder puff interview, and it was labeled as exclusive. I got the you know exclusive banner. And at the end of the week, Sportico does a weekly wrap-up, and they identify a handful of articles and other of the things on their website that they think are uh, important at the end of the week, looking back on all the news of the week. And this was one of them. And I don't think Wicker's going to sit for an interview if he thinks he's going to be asked to explain some of the problems with his bill and the rationale underlying it, particularly with respect to these three death provisions. So I'm not quite sure what was going on there. And then McCann really took a swing and a miss on the antitrust immunity that this bill provides. And I, I'm going to talk about that some more as well. So I, I don't know. I don't know what was going on here. But I'm going to focus on some things that Wicker said that really, I think, give us some insight into how he and the Republicans and the NCAA and the Power Five and their lobbyists and lawyers are thinking about the short term in the legislative process. And Wicker, he said that he thinks that there's a chance that there could be some legislative action on a bill like his between the midterms and January when the new Congress is seated. And it, I, I didn't quite understand his rationale there, but he seemed pretty strong on that point. And one theory that just popped into my head is that if the Republicans regain control of the the Senate and, and they take the House, they have both chambers, they're in the driver's seat. And then they uh, have some leverage to get some of these Democrats who may be leaning towards some of the things that are in the Republican bills to just sign on. And that's better than a uh, bill after January that's really a Republican-only bill that may cause some uh, consternation, both in Congress and could theoretically be a bill that Biden would be less likely to sign. But one of the important things that Wicker said in this interview is that he thinks Biden will sign whatever bill they put in front of him. 
<laughs> and I, I said, well, my first thought when I heard that is, uh, how did you arrive at that understanding? But, you know, Wicker's been around Congress for a long time. He's connected. He and Maria Cantwell talk. I have no doubt that he has some valuable and credible information on how Biden might view this. And he also said that this wasn't on Biden's radar screen. And that if the Senate can come up with a bill, he just doesn't think this is an issue that Biden's going to get all jacked up about that. You know, we'll see. But I thought that was very revealing because that suggests to me that Wicker believes that he's made substantial inroads with the Democrats. And he, he has. And I've talked about that as well. And, and I think that Maria Cantwell is the perfect example of that. And when I break down the Commerce Committee, and then I'm also going to break down the Judiciary Committee and then the Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions Committee in upcoming episodes, because those are the three important committees. And that's where these hearings have been held since February of 2020, because they tie directly to the three things that the NCAA and Power Five want with these death provisions. You get preemption from commerce. They're the committee that could grant that. You get the antitrust exemption from judiciary. You get their blessing because judiciary has frontline jurisdiction over antitrust issues. And then you get the no employee provision from the Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions Committee, because because they have the authority to bless any changes to labor laws that would make it impossible for athletes to be employees under the NLRA or the, or the FLSA. So those are the three committees. And there's a reason of all the committees in the Senate that those three committees conducted hearings in 2020 and 2021. The other thing that Wicker said in this interview that is important, I think, is that if the Republicans regain control of the Senate, Wicker is not going to retake the, the chairmanship of the Commerce Committee. That's going to go to Ted Cruz. And Cruz, of course, has appeared at some of these hearings, and he has been very clear to me, at least, that he's right on board with Roger Wicker's view of the world, with the NCAA's view of the world, with the Power Five's view of the world, with the status quo in system interests. And I don't see any change in the, the the tone of the Commerce Committee or the direction of the Commerce Committee with Cruz at the helm rather than Wicker. Wicker said he's going to really focus on his chairmanship with the Armed Services Committee. So we'll have that uh, switch out. And he believes, of course, that if, if the Democrats retain control of the Senate, that Cantwell will keep her chair of the Commerce Committee. And then another thing he said, which I think it goes really to this motivation issue and, and how badly Roger Wicker and Lindsey Graham and Marco Rubio and Jerry Moran and now probably Ted Cruz and a lot of these Republicans, how badly they want to prevent athletes from having the same rights as other Americans. Because when the issue of the employee provision came up, and I guess I'll give McCann credit for this, he did ask Wicker about the no employee provision. And it's not surprising that he would do that because when McCann testified in in the Senate on June 9th of 2021, largely consistent with NCAA and Power Five interests on preemption. He said, yeah, we need preemption. But he got a question from Hawaii Senator Brian Schatz on the relevance of this retroactive antitrust immunity, but also athletes as employees. Why are we going to prohibit athletes from being employees? That issue has nothing to do with name, image, and likeness because the name, image, and likeness market by its very definition can only be with third parties. It can't be between the institutions and the athletes directly. So there can't, by definition in this null market, be an employer-employee relationship between the universities and 
the athlete. And so Schatz goes to McCann during that hearing and says, what, what's the deal with this? He, he, he said, because Mark Emmert, when he was questioned about those, Schatz asked questions of Emmert. And Emmert said that it was just this employee provision. They were just clarifying the relationship between the athletes and the universities. Just a little clarification, which is just a typical NCAA and NCAA lobbyists. They make the extraordinary seem commonplace. This was an extraordinary ask. And so Schatz goes to McCann and says, Professor, help me here. I'm not making the connection. And McCann says, and he was trying to suck up to Emmert a little bit. Well, with all due respect, Dr. Emmert. <laughs> he said, look, it has nothing to do with name, image, and likeness. And it is a massive ask. That's how McCann characterized it, a massive ask. So McCann, in this interview with Wicker, he asks about that provision in a very benign way. He wasn't uh, really challenging the wisdom of that provision or characterizing it as a massive ask and irrelevant to the name, image, and likeness issue. He was just asking a general question about it. And Wicker kind of, he bobbed and, and weaved. And But he, he did say this, that if the Athletes' Bill of Rights or, say, the Murphy-Sanders Bill or anything that moves towards employee status. The Athletes' Bill of Rights would not confer employee status. It had a revenue-sharing component, but even that would not have resulted in an employer-employee relationship uh, for the athletes. And that, that got pulled out, remember? Cory Booker pulled out the revenue-sharing component in, in his re-release. And I'm going to do a compare and contrast between those two bills as well in up upcoming episodes. But the Murphy-Sanders Bill, which would come out of the help committee and both Chris Murphy, Democrat from Connecticut and Bernie Sanders, independent from Vermont, sit on the help committee. That would explicitly grant the athletes, scholarship athletes, employee status for the purposes of the National Labor Relations Act. Wicker said, if anything like that is on the table and is included in any bill that's going to get a floor vote, then he will initiate a filibuster, a filibuster. Think about that. Filibusters should be reserved for really the most vital issues that are facing our nation. I don't think protecting the interest of a private nonprofit institution, the NCAA, or five market participants, the Power Five conferences, all nonprofits, protecting their interests rises to the level of a filibuster. But what it speaks to, what that comment speaks to, is how motivated Roger Wicker and his compatriots in the Senate are, and his compatriots in the SEC are. And I'm, I'm trying to imagine a scenario where the Wicker Bill is on the table and there is nothing on health and safety. There's nothing on athletes' rights. There is no pathway to employee status, just this death knell to the athletes' rights movement. If that is the bill that's on the table, will Cory Booker or Chris Murphy, or Richard Blumenthal, the athletes' rights advocates, or Brian Schatz, will they filibuster? Would they make it impossible for that bill to pass without a supermajority under the filibuster rules? I don't think so. I think they would look at that and say, that's not the proper use of this extraordinary power that's a product of Senate rules. It's not a constitutional power. It's something the Senate's agreed upon. And of course, the other thing on this motivation issue is that neither Murphy nor Blumenthal nor Booker nor Schatz have Power Five products in their state. Well, I guess New Jersey does, so Booker does with Rutgers. But Blumenthal and Murphy are from Connecticut. Schatz is from Hawaii. They don't have a Power Five product. They don't have a big football presence there. So I don't think they're feeling much heat one way or the other 
on the athletes' rights issue. They're doing it, I think, as a matter of principle. And of course, with Booker, man, he's been a wild card. He's been all over the map. And at that June 9th hearing in the Senate Commerce Committee, when the NCAA and Power Five were trying to get last-ditch preemption, that was uh, June of, of 2021, you know, right before this July 1st deadline. And, and then, of course, the Austin decision on June 21st. Booker appeared as a witness. He was the first person to testify, and he went on a rambling discussion that really started to sound like he agreed with a lot of what Roger Wicker wanted. I mean, it was just, I'm, I'm listening to that, and I'm thinking, oh my God, where the hell is this guy going? And Richard Blumenthal actually tried to reel him in a little bit. So Booker, you know, he wants to please everybody. He pulled the revenue sharing provision. He may have presidential aspirations. That's another thing to fold into the political calculus. I'm going to talk about that in upcoming episodes. So who knows what what is motivating Cory Booker, but none of those guys really are in uh, the same position that the Power Five interests, particularly the, the Power Five interests from the South, and they are driving the train on this. This is coming out of the SEC climate and culture. So you have two fundamentally different uh, views of this and two fundamentally different sets of motivations. But Roger Wicker and pre- presumably his his colleagues on the Republican side in the Senate are going to say no hell no to anything that looks remotely like the Athletes' Bill of Rights or the Murphy-Sanders Bill. Over our dead body, are we going to allow a bill like that to become federal law? What does that tell you? What does it tell you about how they see these athletes? And that dovetails into the next thing that I want to talk about, and that is Tommy Tuberville, Alabama Republican Tommy Tuberville, who in early August made a splash and got all kinds of media coverage, most of it friendly, I believe, or at least neutral, when he came out and said that he and uh, West Virginia Democrat Joe Manchin were going to put together a bill, and they were going to seek uh, input from all the stakeholders. And I haven't looked to see what those stakeholders have said, if that's even publicly available, or who Tuberville and Manchin actually sent these letters to, but they're trying to put together some kind of uh, legislation. And Wicker mentioned that in the interview and that Tuberville and Manchin were struggling with that because they are realizing that there are some obstacles to to getting a piece of legislation that both parties can agree upon. But Tuberville injected himself into the legislative fray on the athlete compensation issues. And the way that Tuberville was portrayed in early August was that he's just a reasonable guy who has some extraordinary insight because of his experience as a Power 5 head football coach. So boy, we need to be listening to what he has to say. And His friend Joe Manchin, he understands this stuff. And oh yeah, so does Nick Saban. So they bring Saban into the discussion. And I guess I should also say that one of the things that I found very distressing about the McCann interview and his article is that he presented Roger Wicker and his proposal as sort of middle of the road as compromise-oriented, and nothing could be further from the truth. The the provisions in that bill are profoundly un-American and would forever suppress the rights of the athletes in football, men's basketball, whose talents and labors underwrite most of the value in the product. How can you portray that as reasonable? And Tuberville hasn't put anything on the table yet, but the, the compliant mainstream sports media presents these people and these interests with credibility and with a sense of reasonableness. And I just don't see that. When you actually look at the 
the bills that they propose, and then the motives that are underneath them. And that really goes to Tuberville and, and these really distressing comments that he made on October 8th at a rally in Nevada, where he just uh, went on an anti-reparations rant that when you listen to it, you just say to yourself, what the hell was in this guy's head? And it just, it was ignorant. What I heard from Tuberville was profound ignorance. And the way that he tried to conflate reparations and crime, it just didn't make any sense, really. And then he tried to walk it back with a statement where he said, I, I wasn't talking about race. I was talking about crime. And I don't know, criminals, white or white criminals seeking reparations. It, none of it made sense. It just sounded like the ignorant George Wallace segregationist language that I grew up with in North Carolina in the 1960s and 1970s. And Tuberville's pulling that garbage into a stump speech in 2022. And so my first thought was, what are the former Auburn football players thinking when they see this? All of them, regardless of their race, but particularly the African-American players. And who knows, it's probably unknowable. And I don't know if any of them will, will share their true feelings, but I, I just felt a, a, a sense of, of sadness listening to that because that dynamic still exists. We want to say that it doesn't, but it does. And if you're a power five head coach in football or men's basketball, you have to be a bullshitter extraordinaire. And they are so good with their pitches. They know how to pitch uh, athletes and their parents and their the people that they surround themselves with. It is a massive sell. And it is, it's spit shined and it's polished and it's, it, it is sophisticated. And I just wonder if any of those athletes saw that Tommy Tuberville when Tommy Tuberville was sitting in their living room with their parents. I'm guessing not. So what's real? Was it the Tommy Tuberville sitting in a black athlete's living room talking about the importance of an Auburn education and the Auburn network and what Tuberville can do for that, that athlete, not just as a football player, but as a human being, as a, a responsible member of society? I'm sure he said those things. But boy, how do you reconcile that Tommy Tuberville with the Tommy Tuberville that we saw on October 8th, and it's moments like that that I just just feel just sad and angry too, but you got to fight the anger because if you give into it, it just becomes demoralizing. But I think you have to look honestly at what Tommy Tuberville said. And if he's going to be a spokesperson on federal legislation, it's going to have a disparate impact on African-American football and men's basketball players because those are the revenue cash cows, then I think you have to question his motives. You have to. And it was interesting to me that after those comments, of course, Tuberville went into hiding. He put out a, a milk toast statement that I mentioned earlier a few days later, but he didn't want to give an interview. And what was more revealing to me is that you had an avalanche of articles in the mainstream media. And I, I did a survey of, of articles, and there were very few that ever made the connection between those comments and his role as a former Power Five head football coach. But he built his political career on the reputation he developed and groomed as a head football coach. And in Alabama, it was with his connection to Auburn, but he bounced around. There was a great article in The Guardian. They, had, they were really one of the only outlets that talked about Tuberville and those comments 
in the context of his role as a football coach in a market dominated by African-American athletes. And I'll, I'll link to that in the show notes on my podcast website, bigamateurism.com. And there were a few other kind of one-off mentions of that. But for the most part, uh, those analyses were within the four corners of, of politics. And they didn't really look at Tuberville's roots and, and how he became a politician in Alabama and, and what he was running on, right? And it was largely his fame as a former Auburn football coach. So you can't just dismiss the, the fact that's who he was when he was running as a politician and then using that political power to talk about putting together legislation that's going to have a disproportionate negative impact on African-American athletes. You have to look at that. You have to talk about that. And there wasn't a single article in the sports media about Tommy Tuberville's comments. I, was, I just found that, I, I guess I shouldn't be shocked. I felt some shock. I'm like, well, I'm looking and I'm looking. I'm like, where are they? If there is one, you know, send me an email. <laughs> send me an email and I'll take a look at it. But where were our reporters at Sports Illustrated and ESPN and The Athletic and Sportico saying, wait a minute, this is a red flag. And it's a red flag we have to pay attention to. And the reason that that's important is it goes to another narrative that, that I have been talking about since the beginning of my uh, writing and, and my speaking on these issues. And that is that the, the power of the media interests that are uh, directly connected to the financial benefits of big-time college sports, all of them, ESPN, who is directly involved as a producer of the product, and then there are also the media that covers it, but also the media outlets that, that aren't on the production side. They are head first into the big time college sports trough and they're they're feeding away. It's a feeding frenzy now as the revenue streams are increasing, not just the amount of the existing streams, but new streams. And you go to the Sportico website and it's just article after article after article about the amount of money that's coming into the, the sports products, including college sports, and then how they're looking to exploit and identify new revenue streams. That's the name of the game. And in none of those outlets was there a discussion from a values level, at the gut values level, about Tommy Tuberville and his comments and how they are undeniably relevant to his role as a United States senator that's trying to put together federal legislation that will limit athletes' rights. And that silence is a form of advocacy. That's the point that I've made. And if these uh, news outlets don't cover it, then it doesn't exist and it never existed. It's like nothing to see here. And I just, I don't get that. I just don't get it. So it's going to be real interesting to see if Tuberville and Manchin and Sabin and Sankey and all the SEC and congressional voices there come up with a bill that is in the mold of the Wicker Bill. And that's what it's going to be. And we know that. I don't think there's any, there are going to be any surprises there. But when we see a bill like that, the sports media is going to have to cover it. And if they cover a Tuberville Manchin bill, the way that this Wicker re-release got covered, we got a big, big problem. And so we'll see. We'll see what happens there. And then, of course, uh, in upcoming episodes, I'm going to tie all this stuff together with the timeline. The timeline is so important. Looking at issues that aren't directly tied to the the bills that were introduced, beginning really in 2019 with the Walker Bill and then going through to this most recent re-release of the Wicker Bill. We're going to go through all those bills. But other things that were happening along that timeline really tell a story and I think suggest 
suggest a very sophisticated strategy to try to accelerate congressional action on a bill that would grant the NCAA and Power Five these three crucial death provisions that would end the athletes' rights movement. So since we've been talking about antitrust immunity so much, I I also wanted to throw in another tidbit here, another quick hit that just sort of came to mind. You may have read about the antitrust exemption that a number of highly selective private colleges and universities have benefited from since 1994. And in higher education, there's been a a lot of discussion going back for decades on whether institutions can get together and essentially collude on how they award financial aid to prospective students. And they have wanted to be reading from the same page to prevent an arms race. And this arises in the context of the quote-unquote regular student. This really had nothing to do with athletes, but it was looking at the general admission pool and the Ivies, for example, and then my alma mater, I think, was included in this Duke University and, and a lot of other prestigious private schools. They wanted to be able to sort of prevent the arms race by saying, this is the type of aid we're going to agree on. We're not going to go above this. So students are going to be able to play one school off against another. These highly valuable students that could get all kinds of merit awards. So they came under antitrust scrutiny. That's an obvious anti-competitive practice. And the Justice Department started looking into that and put some pressure on them. And they reached a consent decree in the early 90s, and then MIT didn't agree to the consent decree, and they wound up filing a lawsuit that they actually wound up winning. But it caused such a mess that some of these schools went to a couple of powerful senators. I think uh, former Senator uh, Ted Kennedy, Democrat from Massachusetts, was a mover and shaker. I think there was a Republican, too. I can't remember who, but it it ran through Ivy League pipelines. But they got, in a 1994 education-related bill, they got basically an antitrust exemption that allowed them to cooperate so long as the aid that they were offering was on a quote-unquote need-blind basis. So they weren't looking at the financial circumstances. And, you know, the concern there was that these rich schools want to increase their their money, their their endowment and the money mission circle. They think that money serves their mission. And if they can get a bunch of rich alumni in the alumni base, that's great for them. That's just kind of standard operating procedure for these highly selective, prestigious private universities. So this, this requirement was that uh, the schools had to make d- admissions decisions and offers of financial aid on a need-blind basis. And that exemption had a shelf life, and I don't know exactly what it was. I think it was renewed twice, but it was up for re-renewal on September 30th of this year, just last month, a few weeks ago. And there was a lot of discussion about whether or not that, that exemption should be renewed. The sentiment, I think, in the Biden administration was no. The antitrust division, I don't think, was crazy about that exemption. And then there was a lawsuit that was filed in January claiming that these universities weren't paying attention to the exemption and they were actually admitting students on um, a need conscious basis. And the theory was that they so badly wanted the rich alumni that they would do anything to get these students who whose parents were very well 
off. And that combined with the really irrational acceleration in tuition costs put students who really needed some financial aid in a, in a real tough spot because the cost of attendance was going way, way up, but the financial aid was capped through this collusion. And so they wound up having to pay more as tuition went up. But the athletic side of that got exposed. And all of a sudden, people started writing about, well, what does this mean for the Ivy League? Because Ivy League, remember, doesn't award scholarships. And the suggestion was that was a form of collusion that was a byproduct of this 568 exemption. And I, I guess it was. But again, that exemption really had nothing to do with sports. I don't think people were really paying attention to what was going on at these universities on the sports side, because that, that just wasn't the, the initial concern. So now you're seeing people talking about, wow, the Ivy League's going to have to offer some type of scholarship. They can't collude on no scholarships because that's the same kind of price fixing that was going on for the uh, general student admission population. So I, I don't know how all those issues are going to play out. And I may talk about that more as need be, but you're talking about a much different set of interests. And some of these articles talking about the impact on, on athletics were looking at the O'Bannon and the Austin suits and the decisions in those cases as uh, controlling when it came to Ivy League schools. And you know some of these schools that were benefiting from this exemption were Division three schools, like Emory University is a good example, very high level university. I think they compete at the Division Three level. You know, and Division Three doesn't offer athletic scholarship. That's a scholarship limit. That's an anti-competitive practice, I guess, when you look at it through the lens of this 568 issue. So what happens there? And I think that may be overblown. I don't think Austin and O'Bannon really work. And what, what I think the discussion about these issues points out is how much of an outlier Power Five football and men's basketball are from the rest of the college sports world. And so you have these concerns that are raised and this litigation that operates in that very narrow slice of the most profitable sports products. And I don't think when those cases are being litigated, they're thinking about the downstream effect. And we haven't had a discussion about that. So maybe this will spur a discussion like that. But I think the antitrust issues are much different for a Division three school or an Ivy League school. And remember, those are fact-specific. The market's going to be different and all kinds of stuff like that. But I'll pay attention to that. But the reason I wanted to raise this is that Marco Rubio, and who is a Republican from Florida, Senator from Florida, and Mike Lee, who is a Republican from Utah, and he is on the Commerce Committee, and he has participated in all these hearings on name, image, and likeness, and compensation, and athletes' rights, and, and all this stuff. And he's been somewhat skeptical of an antitrust immunity for the NCAA and the Power Five. So I think he's been consistent. But after this 568 issue came up and the, and the question was on the table, does, does Congress renew this exemption? And they had this deadline of September 30th. So in a press release dated August 22nd, 2022, Rubio and Lee issue their thoughts on this 568 antitrust exemption. And the title of it is Rubio Lee urged DOJ to investigate antitrust compliance, restore competition in higher education. And I just want to read a, a little bit from this because this is so, so important. So this release says, America's antitrust laws prohibit exactly this kind of anti-competitive behavior and are premised on the bedrock principle that a free competitive market delivers the best possible outcomes for consumers. Our higher education system should be no exception. 
Without competition among universities, prospective students are denied the wealth of benefits that flow from a free market. Whatever the case for granting the 568 exemption in 1994 may have been, the facts now cause us to question whether it is still warranted. In effect, the 568 exemption sanctions price-fixing agreements between competing universities and eliminates any incentive to reduce their cost of attendance through competitive financial awards to students. Unsurprisingly, the result has been artificially inflated costs of attendance, higher student debt, and a distorted higher education market that is increasingly accessible only to the wealthy. In fact, since the exemption was enacted in 1994, the endowment of 17 universities that utilize the exemption have ballooned from approximately $21 billion to $233 billion. As such, we request that the Department of Justice promptly investigate whether any academic institutions have violated the antitrust laws and their coordination of financial aid awards, whether before or after expiration of the 568 exemption, and help restore competition in higher education. Wow. How do you disagree with that? I don't think you can. When you look at this through the lens of free competition laws and the values that underpin them and economic liberty and allowing open and robust competition, even if it looks disorganized, even if it looks messy, even if it looks like the Wild West, which is precisely how these Republican senators have characterized the name, image, and likeness market that they want to come in and shut down through an absolute antitrust immunity. And guess who the leader of the pack was on an antitrust exemption that would allow the NCAA and Power Five to limit college athletes' economic rights? None other than Marco Rubio, Republican from Florida. On June 18th of 20. 20. Marco Rubio introduced a bill titled Fairness in Collegiate Athletics Act, another Orwellian title. This bill is only like five pages. It offers virtually nothing in terms of actual substantive nil benefits, but it grants the NCAA and Power Five the three death provisions that it has wanted and, and that it wants now. Preemption of state laws, antitrust immunity, and athletes cannot be employees. And when that bill was released, it got all kinds of fawning coverage in the media. Rubio's bill was the death knell to the athletes' rights movement. It was the first bill out of the blocks. The Walker bill got slapped down by the NCAA and Power Five. And it was a, a bipartisan bill. It had bipartisan support. The Rubio bill doesn't have another sponsor. It's not a bipartisan bill. It wasn't a bipartisan bill. But when it was issued, you had this press release from Rubio. And this was coordinated. So these comments and these statements weren't a response to Rubio's bill. They were released on the same day as part of the grand rollout and the propagandization of this bill. And you had the NCAA issuing a statement saying, hooray, hooray for Marco Rubio. He's going to get the athletes some meaningful name, image, and likeness compensation. So let's see what, let's see what the NCAA says. This, this was a very short press release, but boy, it is all over this bill. It's time titled NCAA Statement on Senator Marco Rubio Bill. First sentence, we commend Senator Rubio for introducing this critical piece of federal legislation to support student athletes. That's what we're doing here. We're supporting student 
athletes. The provisions of Senator Rubio's bill are consistent with the many steps our member schools are taking to modernize name, image, and likeness opportunities for college athletes. To support these efforts, our members also have stressed we need assistance from Congress to set a federal framework for name, image, and likeness, and Senator Rubio's bill does just that. His bill sets out federal parameters for allowing student-athletes to profit from the use of their name, image, and likeness without turning them into employees, preempts legislation at the state level, and importantly, protects the association from ongoing litigation as we move forward with establishing national rules on name, image, and likeness. (laughs) <laughs> and then, you know, we look, look forward to working with Senator Rubio. All, all these public comments, oh, thank you, Senator Rubio, bravo. We look forward to working with you. But that's a revealing statement from the NCAA on the first piece of federal legislation that has everything that they want in it. It has the three death provisions. Uh, can't be employees. We're going to take all these state laws off the books. And importantly, we're going to get this antitrust immunity as we move forward with establishing national rules on name, image, and likeness, leading the public to believe. This is part of the bait and switch campaign that I talked about in that episode on the Mark Emmert interview and what Macon Delareem had to say about the NCAA's true intention. They didn't want to do anything on Neil. They were just trying to get these federal protections and immunities. So when the NCAA says in this statement that they're moving forward on establishing national rules on name, image, and likeness, that means we are moving forward only after we get these federal protections and immunities, which would allow us to do nothing on name, image, and likeness. And of course, they never changed their rules. That interim policy wasn't a rules change, and it was contingent upon getting help from Congress. That was really what that interim policy was about. So it's Congress, 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 Congress from the very beginning. But in that uh, Rubio press release, you have statements from conference commissioners, from the ACC, the SEC, the Big 12, from every athletics director with the university, uh, FBS University, in the state of Florida. And it is just a love-in for Marco Rubio and this incredible bill that he put together. So I don't know how Rubio explains this profound hypocrisy. And I don't think he's changed his mind in two years on antitrust immunity for the NCAA and the Power Five. That's not going to happen. He's going to be lock, stock, and barrel. He's in a tight race, though. We'll talk about that you know, in upcoming episodes. But assuming he wins, and I think he probably will, he's going to be back in this discussion in one way or another. And a lot of the movement on name, image, and likeness and pressing federal legislation has run through Florida interests. That's just an interesting story. But I, I would be curious to hear Senator Rubio address his condemnation of compensation limits for regular students in the the award of financial aid, but his insistence on those compensation limits for athletes who bring hundreds of millions of dollars into the big-time football product in the SEC and the state of Florida. I just don't know how you reconcile. All right, so in the next episodes, I'm going to be talking uh, in more detail about the lay of the land in Congress, and I may make a few predictions on some races. You know, Mike Lee, the uh, Republican from Utah who has been skeptical of an antitrust immunity for the NCAA, he's in a tough race. So we're going to look at what the after scenario might look like if some of these seats change over. We're also going to look at Georgia, Raphael Warnock, Democrat from 
from Georgia. He sits on the Commerce Committee, and he's in a bizarre race with Republican Herschel Walker. And one of the scenarios, this is kind of a Groundhog Day scenario, is that we are looking at the Senate hanging in the balance yet again with the Georgia special election. So we'll talk all about that stuff. But I just want to close this thing out, and I want to thank you so much for joining. It's always an honor and a privilege to have you, and I hope to have you back for the next episode of the Big Amateurism Monologues. Take care. 